afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Just uh, yeah, another traffic update here. And first, Auckland, there was that um, incident on the, s- the northwestern State Highway 16, or the Lincoln Road off ramp northbound is open. However, the right-hand turn onto Lincoln Road overbridge is closed. Left-hand turn is open, uh, and the Lincoln Road off-ramp southbound closed there. So, yeah, that's because of that uh, emergency services incident there. And uh, going to Timaru, it's been a crash uh, due to a crash the left southbound lane on State Highway 1 Evans Street near the intersection of Ashbury Ave. That's blocked. Road users are advised to take extra care. And just a little bit on this um, Central Auckland sewer line that's resulted in this massive sewage overflow pouring into uh, Waitamata, creating this really large sinkhole. Um, the black flags on beaches will stay up for at least 72 hours, and so do stay out of these following beaches. Point Chevalier Beach, St Heliers, Koimarema, Devonport, Torpedo Bay, Cheltenham, Bayswater, and Judges Bay. So all those beaches, stay out of them, uh, or don't swim at least. Tim Pass for the panel, and this from RNZ's Guyana Espina this morning. It's about how powerful the food lobby in Aotearoa is. Examples raised include a nutrition conference, this is in this um, article here, and whether or not they should accept $25,000 to have a guest speaker who has strong ties with the meat and dairy industry. A real moral conundrum when money is very tight. And sponsorships, payments and deals run right across the fields of sport, politics, education, nutrition in New Zealand. Is it just pragmatic to partner with food companies or just wrong? Fiona Singh is a research fellow at Auckland University and food expert on the panel of Health Coalition Aotearoa. Fiona, kia nice to have you here. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks for having me. So I quite I found it quite uh, illuminating this uh, piece by Guy this morning on RNZ, worth the read. But does the food industry have considerable influence on the debate about obesity, nutrition, sustainability here in this country? I think they definitely do have a lot of power and, and wield it in our policymaking process. And so it's about getting, you know, those policies that we desperately need on the agenda. And we're seeing, with especially with nutrition policy, um, these policies are really struggling to even get, you know, talked about or on the policy agenda before they even get to the design and development phase. So considering our large obesity epidemic, um, it seems bizarre that there's a, a complete lack of yeah, um, legal op- legal operations and, and ways to have these things regulated. And is that perhaps why some of the issues that we've talked about constantly, for example, attacks on sugar, they seem to get sort of bogged down in the quagmire? Definitely getting bogged down in the quagmire. We know that because um, we're seeing internationally countries race ahead of us. Um, We have multiple, we have, you know, 40 plus countries have these SSB taxes, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. We have various different types of of front-of-pack interpretive labels. All of these things are mandatory, and we have a lot of countries trying to regulate um, unhealthy food marketing to children, all using legal measures. And not only that, we have the international academic community and the WHO sort of UN community all in chorus saying that these policies are well and truly needed um, to fight that, you know, 71% global burden of disease caused by these kind of diet-related um, issues. 
So the fact that New Zealand hasn't been able to get anything over the line indicates that there is something going on um, and that we are getting pushback and politicians are reticent to try and introduce some of these policies in our country. Fiona, we'll come back to it. Let's bring in our panel and they see what views or comments they have on this. Ali Moore. Yeah, so on the conference issue, that is an interesting one. If you have a look at the annual reports of the charities that you support, which I occasionally have a nose through, um, you'll see that these are pragmatic decisions that are having to be made all the time. You know, a lot of the charities that I support uh, are taking money from... um, you know, pub charities and lotto and so uh, charities or foundations associated with gambling, for example. Um, and and I guess, you know, you have, to, you have to find the money to do your good work where you can. When it comes to um, the concept of the food industry, we know the supermarkets, for example, um, are... Uh, often telling us about the good work that they do in schools. They run programs that um, that they say are helping to counter obesity amongst children. Um, but it's hard to argue that there's more that they could be doing. For example, if they wanted a proven way of reducing harm from unhealthy foods, helping to reduce obesity, there are very easy things that they could be doing in store. There was a 2017 British study which showed that when you take chocolate and confectionery away from those very easy access spots like the, um, you know, the eye-level shelves and the checkouts, um, the, uh, the, the incidence of people buying those uh, confectionery dropped and it stayed down for quite a while afterwards but eventually crept back up. So I think you have to um, have a look at the, uh, you know, a lot of people would say they're, um, what's the equivalent of greenwashing, food washing, obesity washing uh, that yeah. the supermarkets might be doing by running uh, the kind of projects that they like to, to speak about, whereas, you know, not doing very much in their own uh, retail environments? Not Fiona? Yeah, exactly. That's um, corporate social responsibility. Yeah, 101 explained there. I think they... They are very good at outwardly facing, running fantastic PR campaigns that sort of put them right in the centre of the issue and say, hey, we're part of the solution. Um, and the paradox is they've, you know, in large part caused the problem. Um, so it is bizarre that that rhetoric keeps going and then that influences the government's ability also to be able to push them out or not include them at the policy phase when it comes to policy design. Jack, but of course. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, if we don't accept, say, twenty-five grand from a food company, will will a conference actually fall apart, or is there a way to say if they choose a speaker, is there a way to actually mark them out as being advertorial? Because you can do that in newspapers and magazines. Yeah. If someone's paid oh, that's for a fair ad. point. So it's quite yeah. upfront. Yeah, so you know this has been paid for. Fiona, I definitely think there should be absolute transparency and disclosures around. And I think the issue with the conference there was that. But it's pretty black and white that um, this kind of uh, engagement with the food industry shouldn't be occurring and and that should be happening across the board, um, not just with governments, but also academics. So there's a pretty stark conflict of interest policy that most people employ um, and and there is really, you know, no wriggle room. Um, But, you know, 
if things do have to occur, and I think what the argument in Guyon's piece was that if we're going to have to use this industry person, which I personally you know, wasn't involved with and don't necessarily agree with, um, that we need a panel of people that can counter their mm. potentially biased and commercially vested interest um, and, and the way they're presenting it so that there's a full picture of the people at the conference. Just finally, um, it's, 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 it's an interesting one, isn't it, Fiona, because I'm, I'm p- picking up on a couple of Ali's points. By the same token, these are industries uh, with a huge amount of power. It's because these are industries that feed us. Should they yeah. not, in some capacity, be part of the conversation? Exactly. At the point we have, when the tr- struggles we have with food and nutrition policy, is that there is a spectrum of, you know, food is ne- necessary. Um, and so certain food companies and certain um, food manufacturers are, of course, um, part of working on the solution. They don't necessarily still need to be at the policy design table. We still have experts that can help work that out. What is def- definitely not necessary is an ultra-processed food company. And there are you know, multinationals wearing the most power um, are in that kind of category. And that kind of food is what's driving this obesity mm. epidemic. So therefore, no, that those, those companies... Representatives of those companies shouldn't be in the conversation. I agree with you. It's very good to have you on, Fiona. Kia Uh, That's Fiona Singh, their research fellow at Auckland University, food expert on the panel of Health Coalition. Oh, if you want to check out that piece, go to rnz.co. Tricky one though, isn't it, Ellie? It's uh, it's it's um, a continuum. You know, you're a small charity, and you get uh, a check of a certain amount of money that could keep you going for another uh, six months a year. What do you do? Yeah, it is really tricky, mm. um, and, and I'm sure those are conversations that go on uh, at every uh, governance board meeting. Yep. You know, but making those um, choices is very difficult. Maybe cut down a few dinners and drinks and be transparent, because you're there for the matauranga, aren't you? Not for the free kai. Well, I hope so. Mm. Nineteen pass for Jack Yan, Ali Moore joining me today. To this, children are leaving school early in search of work, sometimes as young as 12 years old. On top of that, truancy services are keep being kept busy with thousands of kids unenrolling from school, sometimes while still in primary school. Gaylene Wilkie has seen it. She's the manager of Topol Pathways for Youth Employment. Gaylene, welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Nice to have you here, Gaylene. You mentioned actually you were uh, gobsmacked when a 12-year-old rang you looking for work. That's right. It was actually the parent of the 12-year-old wanting to know if we could help them get a job. And I've had two uh, parents of 12-year-olds phone now, and that is a first. That would have raised your eyebrow being on the phone. How common is this? Well, the 12-year-old is just definitely recently. Um, And in the last year, much more involvement from 15-year-olds to the point we have three 15-year-olds on our current program. So definitely a big issue. Yeah. What is the downflow effect, Gaylene, of a young person leaving school too early, too early, so early? That's right. The problem is, is they might get a job. Generally, it will be quite a low-skilled job. And what happens then is they're underemployed or cannot find their way out of that low-skilled job then to move on to the better job that where they can create a real career plan and get out of that minimum wage cycle. So 
It's very, very challenging. Let's go on the panel, Ali. Yeah, I was hearing yesterday that um, uh, that the 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 wages that um, a young person who doesn't have uh, NCEA one or two earn a few years out of school are half that of um, of their peers who who have got those qualifications. So this is. This is a major issue. And if you're looking at, um, I mean, COVID, of course, has exacerbated this enormously. Um, I'd love to hear from the experts as to, you know, as to how we tackle this, because it's um, interdisciplinary. It is, there, there are issues interwoven, including poverty. There are, we, we know that there are a lot of, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds who are not in school because they have to work. Um, and and there are a lot of you know community organisations that are doing good work getting younger kids back into school, but um, it's going to take a lot from you know a number of angles to fix this. It's quite bleak. It's quite a bleak picture, isn't your, it? Your response, Gailene? Uh Yes, it it is bleak, and it's definitely a community response. It is not a one size fits all. The reasons are not attending school are many and varied. So it's not all on the schools. I think the whole community and many aspects of it uh, all need to work together mm. to solve this problem because otherwise it's just not going to get any better. Jack. Kayleen, I just wonder of the young people you've dealt with, how proportionally how many are leaving school for economic reasons, as Ellie alluded to, and how many are leaving because the curriculum or teaching just simply doesn't engage them? I don't have any real data, so just going by what I see, the reasons are many and varied, and poverty is one of them, Mm. Um, but it's not seen school as relevant. To be honest, it's parents just not parenting. It's social media and the fallout from that. Anxiety is is really huge, and of course, post-COVID. So from what I'm seeing, there's not one standout reason. Needless to say, as the panellists sort of uh, picked up on, it's when you think of that young person leaving school, you can't help but think it's actually, it's, it's, it's sad because getting back on track with, you say, your literacy or your maths, and uh, as you alluded to, maths being very, very important if you want to get into a trade, it's hard to see a really good future, huh? Well, that, that's right. And, um, I mean, it is possible. It's always possible yeah. to change. It's also always sure. possible to make different choices. But sometimes if they're stuck in a low-skilled job into the situation of living independently, so they have to keep that job to earn the money to pay the rent, and then it's hard to make that change to get the further training you need to get the better job. Just out of interest, Galen, in your um, role and your, your team as manager in Taupo for Pathways for Youth Employment, uh, you'd be seeing a couple of highlights as well, People who, young people who do get into a, a good role, a, a good trade or, or a good job and actually can see that future. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And I mean, it is fantastic to see some of these young people walk in the door really lacking confidence and walking out the other end, you know, standing tall with their uh, building apprenticeship or whatever the case is. And young people, they just need a guide. They just need some support, and it's amazing what difference that can make. Fair point, Ellie, eh? That, uh, it, 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 it can happen. Yeah, I think um, uh, p- perhaps a lot of them uh, are the, the victim of short-term 
thinking and that's not a mm. criticism of them you know if you need to contribute to the family then that's your imperative at the time but you know it would be great if we could get across to all young people that if they, the longer they stay in school the better their prospects are long term yeah Gailene mm. Um, and I think the other crucial piece of that puzzle is we need to get that message through to the whānau as well. I think the parents don't always understand either the education system or how this can just close doors on their young people if they fall out of school too early. Mm. Very good, Jack. As a society, we do need to continue addressing those inequities, don't we, to make sure that everyone has a fair chance. And at the moment, we're just not doing it right. Nice one. Very good. Thank you for that, Gailene. Gailene Wilkie there, who's the manager of Taupo Pathways for Youth Employment. Um, although someone says, I'm a high school teacher in central Auckland and students should be leaving school earlier because some are so disinterested and disengaged with high school uh, that they need to leave, but are too scared and they waste everybody's time uh, with their inability to contemplate their future accurately. So that's another point of view there coming through, um, but a bit of response uh, on that. I left school at 15. I worked through McDonald's to support family for seven years. I'm 28 now and an operations manager of a multi-million dollar business, earning six figures and a homeowner. School is not for everyone. 26 past four, the panel. Um, a bit of response too regarding uh, the upcoming story we're going to be talking about. Why on earth are Australia's... What's the, what's the issue behind Australia's wages? Just why are they higher uh, than ours? We're talking about that. But to this, uh, not even bankers wear ties and blazers anymore. So why should school children, asks Professor Andrew Spicer, organisational behaviour uh, who was cited in The Guardian. He said that school uniforms, like the blazer, like the tie, are moulding our children to fit into a world that doesn't exist anymore. Isn't there pride, though, in wearing the school blazer or tie? And he says that when many schools are becoming increasingly strict about what they wear, the world of work is going the other way. Everybody is in sneens. What's a sneen? Well, it's <laughs> that's a Steinfeld re- reference, isn't it? Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's jeans and sneakers. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, Ellie, what do you think uh, about this? Is it time to ditch those uh, old school accoutrements like the blazer or the tie, or actually, are they damn yes. good? Yes, it is time. They're expensive. Blazers are incredibly expensive. And just to get serious for a moment, a lot of whānau can't afford um, to to get their kids out in, in you know, that kind of um, high-level school uniform. Um, I, I love this story because schools, a lot, a lot of schools' um, rationale for the blazer and the tie and the shirt is that they're preparing uh, supposedly preparing the children for the workforce. Um, well, I'm sitting here working in my pyjamas, which I've pulled up. I've actually haven't taken them off today and I've pulled a pair of tracksuit pants over the top so I can go and feed the horses uh, and I'm still working. And, and as the article pointed out, you know, the workforce does not look as formal as a school, even a school uniform anymore. Both of my kids, one went to a state school, one went to a... Um, a, a semi-state school or a religious school 
Uh, and my boy had to wear a tie and blazer, which is hellishly hot in the summer. Um, my girl, I, I when I went to visit her at school in her later years, I noticed that the teachers were all in the middle of summer walking around in kind of breezy dresses while the year 13 girls were in ankle-length heavy oh. skirts. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, that's that. As you can imagine, rain responses. Um, My son loves looking good in his uniform and is quite happy to wear it every day. Year 13, so many years of it included tie and blazer. He'll probably go into a uniform-based job as a paramedic and also save loads of money in work gear. I don't know, Jack. Ellie's not four. I, I, I donned a tie at the age of 15. And I thought that grounded me in the school spirit. I loved it. I oh. loved getting up, having my two wheat bicks uh, and blackberries and, you know, your cup of cocoa, yeah. getting your tie on. I learned how to tie it. I could tie a tie from 15. Isn't it great? Well, I, I had ties from five because that's, that's when I started having to wear what? them. All of my dad did them up for me. But I, in the last five years, I've shown to do's in a tie, and I'm the only guy who's wearing one. I've got friends over 70 who no longer wear them. I think nowadays, if you wear one, you're either a waiter or you're a politician. <laughs> and that's it. Those are the only two groups that seem to wear ties. I mean, I think modernised school uniforms, if you think about it, if you want to have them. Uh, I, like you, Wallace, did get a lot of sort of school pride wearing my blazer. Um, they felt like grown-up power suits. But is that our era? Because, you know, as people are saying, kids or adults don't wear blazers anymore. So, yeah, maybe there's a point. Maybe okay. we should just modernise the school uh, for, for everybody blazers, out there. Yeah, bla- Ellie. Blazers, blazers were good for those students who were able to collect a lot of badges and kind of prefect <laughs> um, equipments. That wasn't me, so my blazer was <laughs> I'm not arguing against school uniforms. I think mm-hmm. um, some kind of school uniform uh, is a good thing. But, you know, ties and blazers, no. Yeah. No, I'm for ties and blazers. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to I'm going to put my hand up for that. Uh, look, um, at our school, we were offered the boater. That was a step oh, too yeah. far. Um, wasn't to that. Um, Alex you, says, you went at school in the 30s, were you? <laughs> You're about my age. No, it's, it was old school, right. uh, literally. We have three kids as Alex support schools, teachers, and public education. We're not interested in traditional style uniforms and we prefer practical, affordable alternatives. No to the uniform. Pandering, pandering to the conservative and competitive ideals of some parents and teachers is actually pretty lame in this day and age. Just be warm and comfortable in winter and be able to be, keep cool and comfortable in Summer. All right. Uh, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National, Ali Moore and Jack Yan this afternoon.